Well, the story is told that on Thanksgiving several years ago, that Helen Hayes cooked her very first turkey. Before serving it, she announced to her husband Charles and to their son James, as says, now I know this is the very first turkey that I've ever cooked. If it isn't right, I don't want anybody to say a word. We'll just get up from the table without comment, and we'll go down to the hotel for dinner. Then she retired to the kitchen. When she entered the dining room, bearing the turkey, she found her husband and son seated at the table, wearing their hats and coats. <laughs> See, doubt and doubting is something we all do. As a matter of fact, if there is no doubting, there is no faith. Our faith was born when we started to doubt that all there was in this life was what we could see or touch. Our faith was born when we started doubting that the only person who I'm responsible for is to me and my own selfishness. Our faith was born when we started doubting all the substitutes our world gives for God, like money or influence and pleasure. Doubt is often the very first steps of our faith. John Orpark writes in his book, uh, called Faith and Doubt, as long as you have faith, you will have doubts. I sometimes use this illustration when I'm speaking. I tell the audience that I have a $20 bill in my hand and ask for volunteers who believe me. Usually only a few hands will go up. Then I tell the volunteer uh, that I'm about to destroy their faith. I open my hand and show them that I have a $20 bill in my hand. The reason I can say I'm destroying their faith is now that they know I have and hold the bill. He sees the bill and doesn't need faith anymore. Faith is required only when we have doubts. When we don't know for sure, when knowledge comes, faith is no more. Sometimes a person is tempted to think, I can't become a Christian because I still have doubts. I'm still not sure. But as long as doubts exist, as long as a person is still uncertain, that is the time when faith is needed. When the doubts are gone, a person doesn't need faith anymore. Knowledge has come. I tell the audience that this is exactly what Paul points out when he, when he writes in his first letter to the church at Corinth. Now we see but a poor reflection. Now we have confusion and misunderstanding and doubts and questions. Then we shall see face to face. We don't see face to face yet. Now I know in part with questions and doubts, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Folks, it's often in the moments of our doubting that our faith stretches and grows. It is often in those deep moments of questioning where our faith is strengthened. To deny our doubts is to not let God use them to strengthen our faith. A lot of harm can be done to one's faith when we deny our doubts instead of deal with our doubts. Many a person exploring faith or a person new or young in the faith have just been told to deny their doubts, to not search out their doubts. They've been told, don't think, don't question. I've read several testimonies of people abandoning their faith, not because of their doubts, but because they were told to just deny their doubts rather than to deal with their doubts. I read a story around Christmas time about a boy from a Baptist preacher's home. So obviously this story was very poignant to me. This teenage boy was reading the Christmas stories and the, and the Gospels and asked his dad why the story of the birth of Jesus is only in Matthew and Luke 
and not in John and Mark. And why are the stories in Matthew and Luke so different? His dad just looked at him and told him he wasn't supposed to ask such questions. So instead of answering the kids' questions, which, by the way, there are several simple and clear explanations for, he turned this teachable moment into a don't think, don't question moment. I can remember the writer saying that that day was the start of the end of his faith. How can you believe in a God who doesn't allow you to think or ask questions? My heart broke as I read that story. I read a story recently about a very famous comedian who is now an avid atheist and describes the day that his faith died. He was a regular churchgoer with his mom and he said he loved Jesus. He was nine years old, was sitting at the kitchen table, actually drawing a picture of Jesus when his brother, who was 15 years older than him, came home to visit. The brother asked him, why do you believe in Jesus? And his mom shushed him and told him not to ask such a question. Then he said in an instant, he realized something. My brother and my mom don't believe. Jesus might just be make-believe like Santa Claus. Maybe I've been duped. He concludes his story that within an hour, he was a committed atheist. Author Dan Brown, who writes best-selling fiction novels in an interview uh, to promote one of his books, was asked, are you religious? He said, I was raised Episcopalian. And I was a very religious kid. Then in the eighth or ninth grade, I studied astronomy and cosmology and the origins of the universe. I remember saying to the minister, I don't get it. I read a book that says there was this explosion known as the Big Bang. And, but here it says that God created the heaven and earth and animals in seven days, which is right. Unfortunately, the response I got was, nice boys, don't ask that question. A light went off, he said. Oh, the Bible doesn't make sense. Science makes more sense. And I left religion. Folks, science rightly understood only makes the most sense in connection with biblical truth. And instead of the boy being taught the truth, Instead of helping the boy deal with his doubts and questions, he was just told to deny his questions. Don't ask. Don't doubt. Now, our faith is not by sight. Our faith is the evidence of things unseen. But our faith is not blind. Our faith is not a leap in the dark. This is very important. Our faith is grounded on truth, verifiable truth. It is grounded in reality. It can be studied and taught. Our faith is both provable and supernatural, both logical and spiritual, both reasonable and transcendent. Folks, you never, ever have to check your brains at the door of the church. We never have to turn our brains off when we turn the scriptures on. Never, ever, never. Because our God is so much bigger than any question we could ever have. You see, denying doubts so often leads to denying faith. But dealing with doubts and questions lead to a growing faith. Why? Because when we deal with our doubts honestly before God, we come to realize that God is bigger than our doubts. God is greater than our questions. We don't need to fear the questions because God has the answers. I can guarantee you, that God is wiser and stronger and much more powerful than any question or doubt. God can handle 
our doubts and questions. If we honestly deal with them before God, we will come away with real answers. You see, the issue isn't whether you doubt or not. Part of being a human being is the reality of doubts and questions. The issue is how are you going to deal with your doubts and questions? I've heard some say that you're supposed to have faith like a child. A a child's faith is pure and absolute without any questions. Well, I'm a father of three, and I would like to beg to differ. Have you ever heard the questions of a child? Even like a three- or four-year-old child? Some of the deepest and hardest questions of life come from our children. The very essence of childhood includes the exploration and questioning of their world. A 2010 British survey listed the top 20 most baffling questions that children ask their parents. This is from Britain. It says, uh, how is electricity made? What are black holes? What is infinity? Why is the sky blue? There's the classic. Why do we have leap year? How do birds fly? Why does cutting onions make you cry? Where does wind come from? Why is the sea salty? How big is the world? What happens to us when we die? What is a prime number? Is God real? What makes thunder? Why do you blink? In the classic, where do babies come from? How do planes fly? What is time? How does Father Christmas get down the chimney? Where does water come from? Those are some really hard questions, many of which I don't know the answers for. But we would never say to a child, don't ask such hard questions. No, we would endeavor to search out an answer. We would come along that child and help them come to the answers to their questions. You see, childlike faith is not that you don't ask questions. Childlike faith is when you get the answer, guess what? You believe it. See, here's the difference. When a child receives an answer, even to a very hard question, they believe it. They are willing to submit their will, their knowledge, to the answer. Our challenge is not to deny our doubts, but to explore our doubts and our questions and to find out that not only does God have the answer, but he has the truth. And then it's our responsibility, then it's our privilege to express our childlike faith and accept his answer. Abraham doubted God when he was lying about Sarah not being his wife. Sarah doubted God when she laughed at hearing that she would have a child in her old age. Moses doubted God in front of the very burning bush. Gideon kept laying out fleece after fleece after fleece. Elijah doubted God and ran from Jezebel. Job and David asked God some very hard, soul-searching questions. Solomon wrote one of the deepest philosophically profound books ever written in Ecclesiastes. Zechariah doubted the angel of the Lord about the birth of John the Baptist and was made mute. Perhaps the most famous doubter in all the Bible, the Apostle Thomas, doubted that Jesus had truly risen from the dead until he saw him with his own eyes. See, doubts are common. Faithful, God-fearing men and women dealt with doubts. The problem isn't so much the doubt, it's what we do with it. So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 7 as we continue our study in Luke. 
And follow along as I start reading at verse 18. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. says, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, this is John the Baptist, calling two of, of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, leopards are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in splendid clothing and living in luxury? Um, are, are in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. He, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than me. Here we have recorded for us some of the doubts of John the Baptist. Yes, folks, that John the Baptist, the very cousin of Jesus, the one who, when he saw Jesus coming, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who said is recorded in John chapter 1. It says, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he, went, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend will remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John literally saw what happened there at the baptism of Jesus, seeing the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is John the Baptist, who was the promised forerunner of Jesus as prophesied in Isaiah and Malachi. This is John the Baptist who Jesus just said is the greatest man born under that old covenant. This great man of faith is expressing doubt. John was a fiery prophet of God proclaiming a message of repentance, of forgiveness for sins and calling out unrighteousness. As recorded for us in Luke 3.20, John is sent to jail. Locked up in prison because he dared to reprove, to rebuke, to reprimand Herod himself for taking his brother's wife. Now John is in prison with all the time in the world to think. And he's starting to question Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come? With all the first-hand evidence that John's experienced, why was John questioning Jesus? What's behind his reasons for these doubts? I think we can catch a glimpse of that in, in, from John in, 
and what he was thinking by referring back to Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Luke 3.15, and it says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them uh, all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, John is doubting if Jesus is the one because Jesus wasn't meeting John's expectations. John was expecting Jesus to come as this great judge. He was expecting the Messiah to come exercising this great authority with absolute justice over mankind, using that winnowing fork to clear the threshing floor. John was expecting a conquering Messiah. He was expecting Jesus to come to rule and reign. He had made that classic first century Jewish theological error and not fully understanding the two comings of the Messiah. You see, the the Messiah was to come first to die for sin and to raise again, creating a spiritual kingdom of redeemed people. And then to come again a second time in his second coming to physically reign and rule on the earth, bringing judgment and righteousness. The Bible clearly teaches us. We even see this in Jesus' very own teaching in Nazareth, just after the start of his ministry there, recorded for us in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16 and following. Jesus quotes the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61, but then he stops in mid-sentence. He ends with, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. But he doesn't finish the sentence. What follows next in Isaiah says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Because Jesus' first advent was to proclaim the good news to the poor, to provide salvation for mankind. His second advent is when he will come in judgment and in the vengeance of God and in righteousness set everything straight. John's doubts came from his misunderstanding of Jesus. John's doubts came from Jesus not meeting his expectations. Folks, if we're honest with ourselves, doesn't that so often describe our doubts? We doubt, we question because... Jesus didn't do what we thought he should do. Jesus didn't follow our plan. Jesus didn't meet our expectations. We evaluate Jesus by our own selfish wants and outcomes. And when he doesn't do what we want, then we wonder and we doubt. That is why when we doubt, we need to deal with it. Because often our doubts and questions are really rooted in our selfishness or in our misunderstanding. If we expose them to God and to his word instead of despair or reject them, we will grow in our understanding and in our faith. And that's exactly what John does here. He's not afraid to express his doubts, but rather he boldly sends his disciples to ask Jesus for the answer. He's coming to the right source for the right answer. Very important. A doubt denied leads to an open door for deception. A doubt left to fester opens the door to deception. But a doubt dealt with, a doubt dealt with like John the Baptist does, by going to the source, by going to Jesus and his word for real answers, is a doubt that is conquered, a doubt that is squelched, and becomes an opportunity for a growing and vibrant faith. 
We need to take our questions, our doubts to Jesus and his word, and then willingly submit ourselves, our will, to the answer, even if we don't like the answer, even if we didn't get the answer that we want. Biblical faith accepts biblical answers. John goes directly to Jesus with his doubts. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with grace. See, doubters are received with grace. You know, Jesus didn't cross his hands and put this, you know, grumpy, scowly look on his face and say to him, a good person would never ask such a question. Jesus didn't say, you're John the Baptist. You're my cousin. What's going on here? You're not allowed to doubt me. How dare you question me? Jesus responded with grace. Beloved, please get this. Jesus responded with grace. He didn't brush him off. He didn't tell him just to deny and suppress his doubts and questions. No, Jesus responded with understanding and with kindness. And Jesus responded with the scriptures. Jesus answered John's question with the Bible. Jesus knew John was a man of faith and that he would respond in faith when given a biblical answer. Jesus graciously pointed out the truth. Look there again what it said there. Uh, that Jesus said and did in verses 21 and 22. It says that in the very presence of John's disciples, so that they could see it with their own eyes and hear it with their own ears, he healed many people from disease and demons and blindness. And then he said to them the messianic prophecies that he was fulfilling. Go and tell John that what you have seen and heard, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. He was essentially said to them, look, evaluate the evidence. I've proven it in presence of all that I am the Messiah. I am the one. I have fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. Remember Jesus' uh, response to doubting Thomas when he saw Jesus with his own eyes there in John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Folks, that's us, right? We have not seen and yet we believed. How, how great is it that John the Baptist and Thomas saw Jesus with their own eyes, dealing with their doubts with Jesus? We can't do that. But we have something they did not have. We have just as powerful a witness. We have just as an authoritative an eyewitness. We have the very word of God, the Bible, God's inspired and inerrant communication with us. We have the direct words of Jesus to us. I'd like to make two observations. When we come to Jesus with our doubts, Jesus is not offended, but rather he is gracious and wants to point us to the biblical answer. Jesus responds to doubts not with condemnation, but with grace, offering his wisdom. How about us? How do we respond when someone expresses doubts or questions to us? Do we respond with grace like Jesus? Do we respond with understanding and compassion? Do we try to help them and come alongside of them to guide them to biblical answers to their questions? Or do we respond with judgment or shame, condemning them? or questioning their faith. Jesus was gracious and helpful when confronted with doubts and questions. And so should we. The second observation is, 
deal with doubts, deal with questions with God's word. As Jesus dealt with John's doubts with the word, so we should deal with our doubts, with our questions, with going to God's word. James chapter 1 says a doubting man is unstable, like wind-tossed waves. Denying doubts or not dealing with our doubts only leads to instability, causing further doubts and further questions and further instability. James' answer to doubts is found in verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. By faith, James challenges us to, 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 to deal with our doubts and to deal with our questions by seeking the wisdom of God, by seeking the truth, by seeking the answers in God's word. You see, doubts need to be dealt with by faith. I found this acrostic for faith in dealing with doubts from Lee Strobel, and I think it can be very helpful for us as we deal directly with our doubts. The first letter is F. Find the root of your doubt. The thought here is to try to diagnose the source of your doubt. It may be very self-evident, or it may take time and some earnest prayer. Perhaps you're prone to worry, and really, your proneness to worry is the seed of your doubt. Perhaps you're dealing with feelings of depression or loneliness, and that is the seeds of your questions. Perhaps you're dealing with financial issues or health issues. Perhaps you've not dealt properly with past sins against you. Perhaps you're doubting because you've never really given your life to Jesus Christ in the first place. Ask God to reveal to you what might be the root issues of your doubt. The point is that so often we want to change the fruit of our lives without dealing with the root of our lives. If there is any hope of changing the fruit of your life, you have to be focused on the roots of your life. The best way to get rid of the doubts is to cut them off at the roots. A stands for ask God and others for help. I found this quote. It's a great quote. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your belief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your beliefs. When, when doubts come, we need to deal with them as, guess what? As doubts. Doubts properly dealt with do not open up our lives to disbelief. Instead, they grow in our lives of faith as we see God's answer. That's the very heart to express to Jesus of the father of that demonized boy in Mark chapter 9. When he said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. One commentator said, Christ distinguished between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I can't believe. Unbelief says, I won't believe. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinate. Ask God for help. Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Be honest with other believers who can come alongside of you and help you and encourage you. So often we turn to God as a last resort. Often after we've grown too weary, bearing the burden alone, we finally turn to God. Instead, we need to turn to God as our first priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Pray fervently about it. Go into God's word. Seek biblical counsel. Be proactive. Denying doubt can lead to deception. Allowing doubt to linger can lead to deception. Dealing with your doubts can lead to a greater awakening of faith and trust. One commentator said, doubt is, in one er- doubt is one area that we all struggle with at all times. Doubt seems to be a part of faith, though. Paul Tillich once said, 
Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. I think Tillich is right. If we never have any doubts, then maybe we're not being stretched in our ways of faith. God never asked us to put our reason aside to follow him. Today, if you're going through a trial or temptation that is causing you to doubt, cry out to God, he is faithful. He will never leave you or forsake you. Next is the letter I in faith. Identify a plan of action. Now that you've identified the root and you've sought biblical wisdom and help, it's time to put the plan of action together. So often we skip this step in our spiritual lives. We have the knowledge. We have the motivation. Now we need to put together a plan of action to squash those doubts. Perhaps there's something in your life that needs to change. Some habit that is feeding your doubt. Perhaps there's someone you need to go to and seek forgiveness. Perhaps you need to get an accountability partner to hold you accountable to new ways of thinking and living. Rarely is it true that it's the thought that counts. Thoughts plus actions. That's what counts. The next letter is T, take care of your spiritual health. You know, when our physical bodies are weak, we're more susceptible to infections and viruses. So it is with our spiritual lives. When you've not taken care of your spiritual health, we are more susceptible to spiritual infections and viruses. How do we grow spiritually healthy? Well, the age-old treatment is clear. Mix time in the Bible with prayer. Mix in regular church attendance and service for God. Share in a true life-on-life, believer-to-believer conversations and encouragement. And you're well down the road to complete spiritual health. You see, a great way to combat doubt is to have an ever-growing, vibrant, dependent, real, substantive relationship with Jesus Christ. If your spiritual health is strong, the virus of doubt and the infection of skepticism will have no place to start. The last letter in the faith acrostic is H. Hold your remaining doubts in tension. Folks, we are limited people. We have limits in nearly everything. But God is unlimited in everything. There simply are questions where the only answer is God. He alone knows and he alone understands. Sometimes the best response to doubts is humility to God. And just being willing to accept the answer that God is faithful and God knows what he's doing. Remember how God answered Job's questions? How God answered Job's suffering? Starting in Job chapter 38, God just lists question after question after question about what he knows and about what Job doesn't know. How does Job respond? Well, in Job chapter 42, listen to this great response. He says, I know that you can do anything. And no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my Repentance. How do we respond to our doubts? With faith. Deal 
with your doubts. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you this morning just honest, just as real people, not pretend people, not Sunday morning people, real people, honest people. We come before you with with our doubts, with our challenges, with our thoughts, with all these things that are within us that, that seem to be coming in the way. Lord, we come to you to deal with them. We lay them before you in honesty and we ask that you give us the faith to deal with them, the action and the looking at the root and asking for help and seeking out your word. And then with childlike faith, we pray you would help us to accept the answer and to move on in our faith and growth in you. Lord, we thank you that you do not reject us in our doubt, but rather you are gracious and accept us and lead us to the truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.